Welcome to Everyday Greatness, a nice little show proudly brought to you by major sponsor ARA Group, one of Australia's greatest supporters of community projects. Everyday Greatness is a show hosted by a real human being, talking to some real people about real human issues that will help make you feel proud again of simply being a good solid Joe Bag of Donuts. Here's your host, Barnaby Howarth. Welcome to Everyday Greatness, and thanks for listening. I'm your host, Barnaby Howarth. This is a show designed to help people realise there is greatness in being in everyday Harry Sacker roles. We're recording our podcast today inside Let's Go Planet. Thanks to Vince, who's bailed us out from a last-minute crisis. So thank you, Vince. Because family resilience is built by the accumulation of small acts of love over a lifetime, the children of my cousin, Prue and Eric Clark de Kavanagh, will be amongst the most resilient people in world history. Prue has seen some of the darkest parts of humanity. A fearless journalist, Prue has reported on the Twin Towers bombings on 9-11, the Ebola crisis in Africa, post-tsunami Arche in Indonesia, Indigenous communities and asylum seekers in Australia and war criminals in exile in the US and Europe. Prue is the founder and executive director of New Narratives, a group that gives voice to reporters in low-resource countries to find new ways to bring quality journalism to all people. Prue Clark is a woman smashing through the glass ceiling. She's reported from six continents for groups such as the Washington Post, Financial Times, Foreign Policy, Guardian and ABC Australia. She's moderated panels for the World Health Organization and the United Nations General Assembly. But at the heart of it all, Prue Clark is just a country girl. She grew up in the small New South Wales mid-north coast town of Wingham. But today, Prue Clark is the ultimate contradiction of a human being. On the surface, she's a high-flying corporate success story. But you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl. Prue is just trying to be the best mother and wife she can be. And she's holding on to that old-school country pursuit of just trying to be a good person. It's my privilege to say that Prue Clark joins me now. Prue, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Barnes. So you are an old-school country girl at heart. When did you decide that a small-town country girl could help shape the world and become an international journalist? Um, So thank you so much for having me, Barnes. It's such a pleasure to be with you, who's one of my heroes, and and I'm so proud to say my cousin. Um, I, you know, as you know, um, I grew up with definitely on a small farm, but also with lots of people in my world who had done amazing things. My my grandfather, who's your great uncle, had fought on the Kokoda Trail and, uh, you know, really was a, an incredible human being. My other grandfather had actually arrived in Australia from Northern Ireland after his father had been murdered in the, the war that happened in Northern Ireland in 1920 and he was 14. And then my mother had spent a lot of time overseas. So there was a lot of time, a lot of time spent on overseas, this place overseas when I was growing up. So I was always very aware that there was a big world out there and I really wanted to see it. 
And I remember one of my earliest memories was my my mother um, flying me in a plane for the first time in my life from Tari to Sydney when I was about nine or ten, and we stayed on Oxford Street, and stayed in a, a a motel there. And I just I sat up all night looking at the streets and going, oh wow, this city's so amazing. Which you know I look back now, having lived in New York for many years, and you know, chuckle at the naive prue that was, but um, there was certainly you know that really big desire to see the world even then. So every young journalist wants to report on a story that shapes history. You were thrown into that opportunity when the Twin Towers bombings happened and news happened to be in New York. Are you thankful for that situation that you got to report on that or in hindsight would you rather not? Uh, It's a good question. Um, You know, I remember, you know, growing up I was always fascinated by those big events in world history like the Titanic and the... Hindenburg disaster and I so wanted to be there to see those things and, and you know suddenly there I was and I remember calling into the newsroom that morning and there's a young journalist there um, so it was morning for me but even really late at night and there's a young journalist there you might know of his name he's gone on to get a bit of a, a bigger reputation his name's Raphael Epstein <laughs> and Raphael was one year ahead of me at the time um, so we were both sort of I don't know 20 uh, you know, in our 20s. And he was like, you're so lucky to be there. <laughs> and I had just about died, um, you know, an hour before that um, and seen a lot of horrors, a lot of people falling out of the building. And, and it was I was really struggling to process it, especially as a, a young, fairly um, privileged um, Australian who had not really been exposed to any horrors before that. And, and I knew what he meant. And but at the time it didn't feel like <laughs> I felt very lucky to be there, but um, it it certainly plunged me on a path to understand the world better that I was already on. It just gave me a big kick down the, the track. And look, it was really hard. It really um, knocked me for six. Um, it was a lot of a lot of PTSD, but I absolutely um, I would be there every time if given another chance. Um, It's such a privilege that comes with this job to be on the front lines, to see those um, moments, to live that history, to talk to the people who've been through it, experienced it, and and I wouldn't wouldn't turn it down again, ever. So you were thrown back onto the front lines when the BBC asked you to report on the Ebola crisis in Africa. You had a young family at that stage. Were you scared going into that front line or were you thankful? So, um, you know, just to give a little bit of background there, um, after 9-11 I'd taken myself off to work with journalists and report uh, around the world, as you outlined. Uh, and, and so I'd been working in Africa for about 10 years before that. And uh, I had also set up, and we we're going to talk about the, the non-profit newsroom that I'd set up, and it was, it was based in Liberia, which was one of the hardest hit areas um, of the three countries, in fact, uh, by about July of that year, so three months into the crisis, um, Liberia was was you know hundreds of new cases a day, and it was really terrifying. So I actually persuaded the BBC to go, and we were, we had big teams in Sierra Leone and Nigeria, but we didn't have anybody in Liberia. 
and I had been working with a lot of great journalists there for a long time and I, I knew they were terrified and I was terrified for them. So I actually persuaded them to set up a radio program in the country and, and to spread the message of how to avoid getting Ebola. And, you know, it was a real crash course in emergency communications. We did the first WhatsApp programming out of that region. This was 2014. Um, to reach as many people as possible. And also I think um, some things that people are learning quickly in this COVID crisis as well, that people don't trust politicians or public health experts so much. They trust the people they know. So it, it was really when we started speaking to the, the clergy, to the football stars, <laughs> to the musicians, and having them spread the messages that, that the message really started to get across. So to ask answer your question about being terrified, I had spent had spent um, months by that stage really with a lot of public health experts understanding Ebola so that we could spread the facts. And the thing about Ebola, I know it's terrifying. We've all seen the movies, um, and I had felt the same way. But the, the amazing thing about Ebola is though you have a very good chance of dying if you get it, you know, perhaps a one in two chance, you can't spread it until you are really ill. So when the first telltale signs of Ebola are a low-grade fever and a sore throat, and if you've been exposed to anyone who's violently ill, you know you've probably got Ebola. So you can then isolate yourself and not infect anybody else. So it's a huge advantage, obviously, over COVID-19. So I was very aware that I was able to go to these places, not expose myself to anybody who was violently ill, and I would be okay. So I was not afraid, but everyone around me was. And during that crisis, I actually lived in London at the beginning and then I moved to New York and everyone around me. So my kids' schools, uh, we had a live-in nanny. I had to ask her if she wanted to, you know, move out. And the kids' schools were terrified. At one point, the university I was working in in New York had a rule that anyone who'd been in Ebola f uh, territories for 30 days before couldn't come into the building. So there was and, – and, you know, I wasn't invited to dinner parties <laughs> for a good year. Um, so there was a lot of fear. but. But I think, you know, I did what I do with all every terrifying situation. Um, I just, if I have all the facts and feel like I'm in a good position to assess the risk and then I make a decision to go, I don't feel afraid anymore. And that's how it was with Ebola. So after reporting on 9-11 and the Ebola crisis, reporting on everyday news stories might have seemed a bit dull for you. What does it mean to you to be able to run new narratives and give back to the world by prov by providing people with a chance to report on really big stories and advance a and give a voice to people who didn't have one previously? Yeah. So look, it it, it definitely um, you know I think all international correspondents and war correspondents have a hard time coming home and covering council stories. Um, Though, and I still, but I must say, I still have a lot of pleasure in doing really in-depth stories that shine a light on things that don't get enough attention. For instance, one of the last stories I did before this breakout of reporting that I've done now is an in-depth look at paediatric cancer treatment in Liberia and Rwanda, um, two countries that were very similar 20 years ago and now you know, one's had much, they've had much different forms of governance. And I tell you, if you, if you had to have 
cancer as a kid anywhere in Africa, you'd rather be in Rwanda every time than Liberia. So it was a fascinating um, experience for me to be able to tell that story. But um, I did spend a lot of time, I think, you know, by the end of I'd spent five or six years reporting, as you say, in these war zones and, and disaster zones. And I remember having this moment in Congo, in eastern Congo, where they'd had a terrible civil war after the Rwandan genocide. And horrific stories of, you know, of rape and exploitation and child soldiers. And I'd just done four stories and I'd listened to four interviews, four stories, and they were, the stories were so dark that some of them I couldn't report, you know, on American radio, which was the program I was doing them for. Um, and also, you know, the other thing was my my audiences knew why these things were happening. They knew about the minerals under the people's feet and why people were fighting about them. And my family were sort of couldn't listen to these horror stories anymore. And it was just really clear to me that the the people who could do something about it were the people that I was reporting on. And they actually had less information than my audiences did about what was happening to them. So I think a lot of reporters have that frustration at some point and I just thought, you know, when I'm much better off devoting my energies to helping these people report the stories, these journalists. And so, um, you know, my early 30s, um, a bit maybe a, a bit of rush rush of blood to the head and grandiosity, I decided to set up a, a non-profit newsroom to work with the media, the leading media houses in Africa to help them tell these stories better to their people. And we've been going for 11 years now. Um, we're at the moment covering war crimes trials around the world. I have, you know, been just the incredible privilege of working with some amazing journalists who's, you know, th they, I think we take democracy for granted a bit here. And so when you work with people who are bringing information to their audiences for the first time, it's such uh, it's so rewarding and such a privilege for me. Um, you know, for example, one story that we did was um, a really um, quality, in-depth um, explanation of what happens in female genital cutting in countries where, you know, to that had never been done in those countries. So um, the traditional leaders who practice it and make their, you know, have their status and income derived from practicing this were very angry and our reporter had to go into hiding and it was terrifying. But uh, in the wake of that, a whole lot of people came out to talk about why female genital cutting was, was bad and harmful to girls long term. And it, we even started to hear that the girls were hearing about, about what happened to them and they hadn't known beforehand any, anything bad. So it just showed you once you start a national conversation about some really big societal issue, it, the, and, and you inject facts into that setting, the ball starts rolling and, and people make change themselves. Uh, so, yeah, so it's been, it's been a real privilege to be able to do that. So New Narratives has reported on topics like rape, as you said, female circumcision, child soldiers, child labour and teen prostitution. You've witnessed some heavy things. How are you? Uh, well, thanks, thanks for asking, Barnes. Um, it's an important question. And um, it's, you know, I, I have definitely struggled with PTSD. Um, 
especially after my first child was born. And I look, I we we didn't I didn't start having children till I was thirty five, and we thought very hard about whether to have children. But after I had my son, uh, every terrible thing that had happened to a child that I'd reported on, I imagined happening to him. And, you know, in that first year when you're terrified of being a parent, it was really, really hard. And I think, you know, a lot of, I know now that a lot of war correspondents, when they have their first child, it's almost, that's the end. Um, It's very, very hard to do after that. Um, And so... Uh, I and and the other thing is, you know, to walk away. I think people understand that the the hardest part is not necessarily hearing the horrific horrific stories. It's the knowing that you could help that person, but you can't. You have to walk away, and because you can't help everybody, and even if you just gave them, you know, some support to get through the next six months. You know what happens after that. You know you 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 are an observer. You're not part of it. Your role is to bring that story to the international community, and it doesn't feel like enough a lot of the time. And it's it's that's the hardest part is to walk away from people that you know you could help, but that you can't. And um, that stays with me a lot. Um, and so the truth is, actually, new narratives really helped. Um, I think I remember, you know, my PTSD ease, easing the day after we first did some really hard-hitting stories that start, sparked national conversations in the countries. And I could feel that we were driving systemic change rather than the, the one-off that it might be momentarily gratifying for me and the person, but it isn't driving the change that I know journalism can have. So... um yeah, new narratives has really helped <laughs> with my t- PTSD, um, and uh, and I, you know, also I've I've had therapy, of course, um, and you know, it's essential to getting a handle on these things. So let me talk to you about resilience. You were only twenty seven when you reported on the Twin Towers bombings for the ABC. Then it was only a year after your daughter was born that you reported on the Ebola crisis in Africa. How do you think resilience has been built in your life? Is it by the trauma and the horrors that those traumas represent? Or is it have you been getting resilience building from the people around you? You know, it's a combination of all of that. Um, I think I have learnt so much along the way about human nature, about um, what motivates people. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I grew up in very sheltered setting, very, very conservative setting and was very much told this is your role in life. Women do this, men do this. And that didn't ever sit very well with me. So, you know, I was out, you know, much more interested in what I, I could do and what I couldn't do. And so I really spent a lot of time trying to understand humans, how we were, these boxes that we were all putting ourselves in were constructed um, and then I'd see these horrors, so the two extremes, my little sheltered life and then the extremes of the, the people that I was reporting on. And, uh, you know, it really it's really helped me get a better understanding of humanity and what motivates us. And I can't tell you, I, I, it's such a gift to work so closely with, uh, with people out of war settings and um, out of deprivation for so long. Um, 
I'm, I had this photo sitting in front of us. I know it's terrible radio, but it, it shows um, the, a photo. It's probably got 80 really happy-looking Africans. And the thing is that what you don't know about those people is that they're all Ebola survivors. And I took that photo um, probably half an hour after I had done this gutting interview with a midwife who had um, lost her entire family after she'd contracted Ebola while doing her job. And she was telling this gutting story. And then, you know, half an hour later, I turned around and she and all of the survivors there who all had similar stories are, are singing and dancing and, and praising God. Um, and it was so, so shocking to me and such an incredible example of resilience. Um, people who had suffered so much all their lives have become incredibly dependent on themselves and confident in their own ability to survive and keep themselves going. And, you know, I thought if they can do it, I need to, <laughs> I need to get, to get um, you know, I need to have that same um, peace of mind and confidence and commitment. Um, so, uh, yes, it was, it, was, it was really hard um, and I think it taught me that resilience and self Reliance is really critical, so I, we very much push our children to be independent, probably more so than all the parents around us. Um, so it's you know I guess it's a combination of you know we all tell these childhoods where we were basically neglected and left to raise ourselves, and now parenting has gone to the other extreme where everyone wraps them in cotton wool. We're somewhere somewhere in the middle, I think, where we we really do believe they need to. Um, to learn confidence in themselves and independence and push them out of their comfort zone. And it's so far so good. Good to hear. <laughs> so have the horrors you've witnessed in your life shaped your parenting? Um, yeah, look, I said um, that, you know, we thought very hard about whether we 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 should have children and sh- could we bring what is you know, re- a really, really important job. <laughs> and I think a lot of maybe some people don't think too hard about that. Um, so we took it very seriously. Um, <clears throat> we both have had diff- very different lives from our, from our own parents. Um, but, and so many different experiences, you know, so many different inputs. Um, and, and definitely we have, um, taken all of our experiences uh, and because we were older parents we had a lot of experiences to bring to that <laughs> to that parenting so we definitely have yeah so do you feel like you and your husband are being good role models for your children um we try um <laughs> i'm sure that they would um Luca gives us a 12-year-old, gives us a ratings regularly and mostly we get 9 out of 10, which is um, heartening. Um, we definitely feel the the weight of responsibility to be the good humans that they, we hope that they will be and that means modelling really strong values of, of gratitude primarily, um, e- equality, you know, inclusion, racial, gender, sexual orientation, you know, every marginalised um, identity. And we, we also drench them in history and help them understand why groups have been stigmatised but also their own background and how they came to be where they are. Um, you know, when they have so many different stories that have contributed to who they are and we think it's really critical for them to understand that. Um, I work really hard to discourage negativity in them 
it's harder here, to be honest. It's easier in the US where the culture is much more positive and can do. Um, but I do, I do work hard to 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 stop those sort of little negative criticisms of each other and other people. I think that's really important. And I we very much teach them to be humble. I I certainly know the older I get, the less I know. Um, and and to love. I know that's a bit. It sounds a bit corny sometimes, but it's you know it's critical to really. I mean, I think one of the things I've learned is that we are all the same, um, and we get put into little pots and stirred with all sorts of um, poison throughout our lives that can make us turn one direction or the other. But um, I have always had a better reaction from people when I start with love and generosity on the way in. But the other thing I think is to really. F- um, fight for their place in the world, especially my daughter. I don't want her to be put into boxes that I was put into because of her gender and I don't want my son to put other people in those boxes. So that's been really important to do. Do you feel like your children are good people these days? Um, yes, I do. And and I think, you know, that's um, really it's really a relief as a parent. I mean, things could totally off the rails. But they're 12 and 8 and they're both, uh, you know, they're very both, they're both very kind and they strive to be kind to other people. Um, for instance, my daughter just turned 8 is um, for her birthday. She's feeding 100 kids at a big feast in Liberia on Saturday, kids who don't often get um, really good meals and she's really thrilled to be doing that. Um, look, they're both really big personalities and they're always working really hard to get what they want, get one over their parents. Um, but I can see that it's baked in that they're, they're good humans and I think hopefully they'll be okay. <laughs> so you said you sit in the middle of the carrot and the stick parenting model. Yes. Um, do you and your husband actively try and build resilience in your children or you let them fight for themselves? Um, you know, it's funny... I, there's a third option that I do see, which is um, neither. Um, <laughs> it's sort of protecting them from building resilience. Um, and we, you know, obviously I don't want to put them in risk, but I think coming back to that where I, I said to you I, I assess all the f- factors um, when I'm s- deciding how afraid to be of something. And once I've met, come to a decision about how f- dangerous it is I go with that and I'm not afraid anymore so for instance um, Luca doesn't have a phone and he catches the bus from the eastern suburbs to his school in the city every day a couple of times he's got on the wrong bus (laughs) and other kids have a phone and they have you know they just pick it up and their parent solves the problem for them but Luca has a couple of times had to solve the problem for himself and you know, I know people are absolutely terrified, understandably. I mean, the, you know, the terrible things have happened to children. But the chance of that is so incredibly small that I would much rather live my life not dwelling on those fears and forcing him to be, to learn that independence and resilience, learn that he can actually fend for himself in those circumstances. That's more important. That risk is worth it to me. Um, and on top of that, he would be on his phone all day, every day, and we'd never see him again. So <laughs> to us, that has been really key um, in helping Luca build his his resilience and confidence. Beautiful. 
So what sort of mother are you trying to be these days? Mm. It's a good question um, and it's hard. It's so hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. I had no clue. Um, I am trying to teach them that you can um, be strong and do what you want, um, what have the impact you want to have in the world, but also be really respectful and um, compassionate to other people. And I think that um, I hope I'm providing that, being that role model. Um, Eric and I have, you know, we, we share parenting duties, we share roles in the house as much as we can, we've shared careers, we've had to move around all over the world to support each other. So they see parents who are both trying to do have impact in the world and do good things while also trying to be really good parents at the same time. And I hope that they, I hope that they, un, you know, grow up to understand that 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 is an option for them, but that they also have to be very practical and understand that you, you know, the whole you can have it all doesn't necessarily work in the world that we live in right now. You there are always sacrifices, but look, you know, I, I I've again weighed my options, and I think. There are definitely times when I'm not as good a parent as I would like to be, but at the same time, um, I've been able to give them opportunities and expose them to the world and show them how you can be passionate and have an impact at the same time. And, and I think, and especially as a woman, and, and being an equal, have an equal relationship in parenting, and I, and I hope that that is good down the track. Very nice. Um, so when you have guests around at your house, say you have a dinner party, what do you hope your guests say about you guys, about your family when they leave? I would love them to say that we're the funniest, most entertaining people that they've ever met, but I'm, sadly I don't think they do say that because I tend to be a bit um, a bit of a, a worrywart, um, <laughs> which comes probably comes with the job. Um I talk have talked endlessly about Donald Trump for the last five years, and I'm sure everyone who's left our house has gone, "Oh my God, um, hopefully I never have to talk about Donald Trump with Prue ever again um but um you know look i I hope that they think that um we're you know an engaged, caring, loving family and that our kids are engaged and and um, entertaining. Uh, that's my hope. <laughs> well, I can, tell you, <laughs> I can tell you, Prue Clark, as a podcast guest, I feel like it's a privilege to have chatted to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you to the ARA Group for a major sponsorship of this podcast. Thank you to Let's Go Planet and Vince for helping us out last minute, giving us somewhere to record this podcast. Thank you to Look Studio Australia for recording the podcast and thank you all for listening. I hope that when you put your devices down in a, in a little while, you lift your head up, push your shoulders back, puff your chest out and walk down the street proud of being an everyday Joe Bag of Donuts. I hope you can join us next week when I'll speak to ABC sports journalist and personality Tracy Holmes. I'll be talking to Tracy about how sometimes not winning can be a good thing. Thank you all again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Greatness. 
proudly brought to you by major sponsor ARA Group. If you'd like to stay up to date, check out our pages on Facebook and Instagram or to listen to more episodes, go to everydaygreatness.com.au or wherever you get your podcasts.